Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, with co-host Lori McRobbie. And today we're talking with guests about the Dominion defamation lawsuit against Fox News and the departures of Tucker Carlson from Fox and Don Lemon from CNN and other media-related topics. We have two guests with us. Both are, in, both are in the studio. Dr. Anthony Fargo is director of the Center for International Media Law and policy studies and an associate professor in the media school at Indiana University. And Joe Tomain is senior lecturer at the Maurer School of Law and director of the law school's cybersecurity and information privacy law program. If you have questions or comments, you can phone us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. Well, thank you both. Uh, Tony, Joe, thanks for being here. Lori, good to see you again, as always. This has been a wild week in, in the media, wild last, last week or so. Uh, the Dominion lawsuit, the defamation suit, I think was uh, a huge case about to happen. And, of course, there was the nearly $800 million settlement. Um, let me go with uh, Tony Fargo first. How significant was that case? What Were you looking forward to seeing it get to court? No, I wasn't particularly looking forward <laughs> to seeing it get to court, uh, partly because we have a couple of Supreme Court justices who have said they'd like to revisit New York Times versus Sullivan, the major libel ruling. My fear was that this case would eventually get there. Uh, so I was actually a little bit happy about the settlement. Uh, in terms of the case case's big implications, it really kind of confirmed that Sullivan works in many ways because Sullivan does not protect a public figure, uh, someone who libels a public figure if they have told a knowing falsehood or a careless and reckless disregard or shown a careless and reckless disregard. Uh, the evidence that we you know, have seen trickle out from the case uh, in the news media indicates that it was fairly clear that many people at Fox did not believe what they were actually saying on the air about Dominion. So I think it really kind of showed that Sullivan actually does work in that regard. My biggest concern about this case, and in conjunction with the judgments against Alex Jones uh, for uh, his statements about the Sandy Hook parents, was it starting to kind of normalize the idea that $800 million or a billion dollars is a you know reasonable amount for a, a liable judgment. and that down the road could have some serious implications for the more uh, professionally run news organizations. Yeah, build that out a little bit. So, you... Well, and traditionally, I think uh, libel cases come down to a several different things. You're, asking, you're trying to prove actual damages, that your reputation has been damaged, and the courts are trying to put a dollar amount on, on what that's worth if you can prove that you actually were damaged and that there was... Uh, fault attached in the form of either negligence if you're a private person or actual malice if you're a public figure or a public official. Uh, what usually is the scary part for the media is the punitive damages, uh, where juries or judges can award a certain amount of money to basically send a message that you shouldn't be engaging in this kind of behavior. Up until this recent settlement and up until the you know, the Alex Jones uh, cases, we rarely saw libel judgments in the, you know, eight, nine figure range, certainly. And one of the few that did actually get there was dismissed later. So 
but if we're starting to kind of make basically make that a norm that you should ask for 1.6 billion and settle for a measly 800 million, uh, that's a, a trend I would not like to see continue, given the precarious financial condition that many news media are in at this point. Joe Tomain, what, what, what are your sort of takeaways from this Dominion case and, and the ultimate settlement? Yeah, so I, I guess unlike Tony, I was looking forward to this trial, <laughs> unlike the uh, Johnny Depp-Amber Heard trial from last year, which I was not looking forward to. But I thought it was a, could have been an important moment for the protection of free speech in the United States. As Tony mentioned, there has been attacks on what we call the actual malice standard which is a very unfortunate phrase because when people hear the word malice, they think of ill will and hatred and spite. But actual malice is a legal term of art. And what it means is that a person made a statement knowing that it was false or entertaining serious doubts as to its truth or falsity. Recently, there's been critiques of that as being too protective of speech and too harmful to reputations. Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch have written dissents in a couple cases wanting to revisit this constitutional standard established in the 1960s. And I think that this trial, because they really had smoking gun evidence of this subjective actual malice of knowingly making false statements or entertaining serious doubts, there were text messages, there were emails, there was deposition testimony. Uh, that really showed that it looked like actual malice was here. The judge was going to let that get to the jury. And I think that it's reasonable to conclude that had this gone to the jury, that they would have found actual malice in this case. And that could have been, I think, a bright moment, because for the people that say that the actual malice standard is impossible to overcome, I think a case like this would show that it's not impossible. Now. I can't predict what would happen if this case ultimately got to the Supreme Court. There's lots of different moves they could make, but at least at the trial court level, I think it was an opportunity to see that actual malice, while it is a high burden, it is not an impossible one. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about, uh, just go right to, to Tucker Carlson, because it seems to me that, I mean, a, a reading of what happened with his dismissal is that he was thrown under the bus, if you will. He was, the narrative can now be, well, it was Tucker who was, you know, really the one behind um, promoting, if you will, on the air, these falsities while obviously not believing them behind the scenes. And it takes some of the, the eye off of other actors um, in, in this whole case. Um, it is, so I'd both be interested in your take on uh, kind of the implications of how Fox both was they were able to settle and then find a fall guy and carry on. You know what that might mean. Uh, let me just ask that question. Then I want a follow up question with respect to Tucker's uh, liability in this case as well. But but what do you uh, in terms of the image the that's projected here by that? Do you do you think people are just going to say it was Tucker's fault and move on? So it's certainly hard for me to say what what other people will think. But Rupert Murdoch said during uh, his deposition, I think, that it's not red or blue, it's green, right? It's about money. And so I think that uh, what I understand, the Wall Street Journal had an article a couple days ago that ultimately seemed to suggest that there, were, there was evidence that came out during the discovery of the trial that put uh, Tucker Carlson in a worse light than he had already been seen, and that that was a liability risk for Fox, and so therefore he was no longer worth keeping around. As far as whether he's the fall guy for the statements that were made about the 2020 election, there's certainly a lot of other folks there that were probably more responsible for those statements. So Lou Dobbs, uh, Janine Pirro, I think are a couple people that the evidence that's in the summary judgment order from the court shows that they were perhaps even more responsible than Tucker for their on-air statements of the former President Trump had actually called in to the Dobbs show during the January 6th insurrection when it was happening, and uh, Dobbs was told, you can't put him on the air. So I don't know how people will react to Tucker's firing in the wake of this trial, but he certainly wasn't alone in uh, the reasons why this case happened in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that is clear out there. D does he face personal liability here? Can Dominion go after him in a civil suit, presumably? Yes, in fact, they are uh, currently still pursuing action against him. Uh, the complicating factor for him was that 
if he were employed by Fox, Fox would probably cover his legal fees. They probably still will because the activities in question happened while he was still with Fox. But uh, but in a libel suit, what we oftentimes forget is usually the lawsuits are, are framed as, uh, well, Sullivan versus the New York Times. But what we forget about Sullivan, for example, is that uh, Mr. Sullivan also sued several uh, civil rights leaders in the South who were part of the sponsorship of the ad that he was suing over that ran the New York Times that led to the suit. In most libel cases, people will sue not only the news organization, but uh, at least in the initial stages, will sue the reporter, the correspondent, sometimes even the sources. A lot of times those people will get dismissed as the case goes on because, frankly, the money is with the news organization. Uh, I was a reporter, I can tell you. Uh, they could have robbed my piggy bank if they wanted to uh, if I got sued, but nothing much was going to rattle out of that. Uh, but yeah, he is still uh, facing uh, action uh, personally from Dominion, mm-hmm. among others. Uh, not just him, but also Janine, per- some of the folks that Joe mentioned, uh, as well as there are lawsuits pending by another voting machine company, Smartmatic, uh, against uh, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani. Fox, some of the same folks. So they're, they're, this case isn't really over yet. The big, the big part of it is, but there's still a lot of, of uh, a lot of lawyering still to be done. We're talking about media law issues. There have been a lot of uh, a lot of news about media law uh, recently. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also send us. Uh, your questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org or on Twitter at Noon Edition. Joe, I wanted to ask you to, to follow up a little bit about, you know, your comments on Gorsuch and Thomas and and their sort of concerns about the actual malice standard. What, what would they like to see? So there are different theories about how to interpret the Constitution. The theory that's carrying the day at the Supreme Court now is called originalism, although there's different strands of originalism. There's not just one theory of it. And ultimately, what Justice Thomas said in an opinion, actually involving Bill Cosby, that the court didn't hear, but he said, even though I agree we shouldn't hear this case, we should really revisit this actual malice standard, because ultimately what Justice Thomas says is that there's no basis in the text or the history of the United States to support this high burden. There's a wonderful law review article by a gentleman named Matt Schaefer who takes Justice Thomas head on to this argument about originalism and says, okay, if we're going to use originalism as the theory to interpret the Constitution, he shows that you can support the actual malice standard going back uh, centuries. Now, that phrase wasn't used, but he shows how it was used to mitigate damages and sometimes how it was used to be a complete defense. And so he really critiques Justice Thomas on the grounds that Justice Thomas wants to engage on, which is this theory called originalism, which a lot of people, including myself, are skeptical of. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, we talked about the the Dominion case some, and, you know, this this was a very high-profile libel case. And, Tony, you mentioned... You know, there a lot of these libel cases are are settled long before they get to court. I mean, I worked in the media for in the newspaper business for a long time. I was threatened with libel suits before, but basically the threats that I got had absolutely no merit, and they weren't going to get there. But we wanted to stay out of court because you never know what a jury's going to do. How often do these cases actually get into court? It's relatively rare, um, and to be honest with you. Uh, it oftentimes depends on how obstinate the defendant wants to be. Uh, if a defendant is absolutely convinced that what they said was true, it's very hard to get them to settle sometimes. Uh, some of it also comes down to how much of a check do you want us to write, and if you can't agree on that, eventually you'll go to trial. But uh, one of the, I think one of the criticisms uh, that has inspired both Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch by the way, Justice Gorsuch's, Gorsuch's uh, problem with Sullivan is not the same as Justice Thomas's. He actually feels that given the evolution of media uh, and the quickness with which lies can spread around the world, that, that the libel standard is outdated at this point. Uh, but both of them have, you know, that, that pro- or have problems with Sullivan. But in most cases, uh, because of Sullivan, uh, if, 
once a, a plaintiff is determined to be a public figure or a public official, they have to meet this high burden of the actual malice standard. And oftentimes in pleadings and other things, there simply is no evidence that that exists. So the case gets dismissed at a fairly early age. Or if there is some merit to it, as you said, most media organizations would rather not go to court uh, given that it's not that hard sometimes to find a jury that doesn't like the media uh, or you know what they conceive of as the media. So uh, a lot of them are settled for much less than was originally sought, uh, which again goes back to what I was saying earlier about normalizing billion dollar you know judgments is uh, that's way outside of the mainstream of what these these cases usually go for. I think uh, you know in point of personal privilege, I guess as a co-host, but um, what I found often is that people would be upset about something, and, and often we had made a mistake. But first, it wasn't a malicious mistake; it wasn't a public figure, and second there were no damages that could be proven. So it's a lot of people throw around this term libel because there's been a mistake in the newspaper and it never, or on radio or wherever, and it never really gets to that point. Yeah. Well, I think in, in that respect, I, and I speak from not very much uh, real knowledge, but my, my sense is that the libel laws in other countries are not as strong as they are here. Um, is there any sense that I, you know, I think, for for example, in in England, it's a it's easier to prove that. Are those legal standards being considered here in this? Is this causing any of that kind of reflection to happen, or as you say, is this, you know, because of how this has come out, it's actually, as you say, has proved the the utility of of the Sullivan decision. I don't think, and maybe Joe can correct me on this one. I I don't think I've really heard a counter proposal to what libel standards should look like from either Justice Thomas or mm. Justice Gorsuch or some of the other critics, just a concern that it's too high of a burden for public officials, particularly um, public figures. You are correct that uh, there are very few other places in the world that that are uh, that have anything close to the Sullivan standard. Uh, in fact, uh, Congress passed a law in 2010 uh, saying that uh, U.S. courts are not uh, supposed to enforce a foreign libel judgment uh, unless the, the country in question respects freedom of speech to the same level we do, which is almost no other country. And that was partly as a result of libel judgments against American publishers in the U.K. and Australia uh, and other countries where it was much easier uh, to win a libel suit if you were a plaintiff. Yeah. So... Actually, that's an interesting. Uh, this this may be obvious, or it would be already be happening. But Fox, Fox is an American company, obviously, but broadcasts internationally. But there's you know obviously no basis for someone to to try to sue under the laws of another country. They couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, any sense of what this is going to mean for how Fox proceeds? This is really, I suppose, more of a question of um, company direction and policy. I mean, they're they're. Uh, pursuit of the story about Dominion was clearly an attempt to continue to keep their their base and their paying base because, of course, they make most of their money on a subscription model, um, and they stand to certainly lose a, a chunk of that, but they've obviously made a calculation. How do you think that's going to affect uh, newsroom policies for what gets on the air? Do you have any sense of how that might play out? I, I have a couple thoughts. The specific as to this case and the statements that the 2020 election was stolen, they're going to have to be careful like every other news organization. The summary judgment order in this case runs about 84 pages and it has maybe 500 plus footnotes citing to deposition testimony of Fox employees, of text messages, of things like that. And ultimately, and for folks that aren't familiar with the law, summary judgment is a way to resolve an entire case or specific issues prior to trial. And Dominion filed for summary judgment on lots of elements of defamation. They won some and they lost some. So one area where Dominion won on summary judgment, so this was a question that was not going to be decided by the jury, it was decided as a matter of law, was falsity. And at one point, the court in italics and in bold and in all caps said crystal clear that these statements were not true. And so if I was advising Fox or anybody else for that matter, uh, to rehash the statements that the election was stolen is uh, 
treading very thin ice. As far as the general tenor of the newsroom and the general policy on other issues, this takes us right back to this robust free speech protection that you pointed out the United States is exceptional. Now, we could talk about that in a normative sense to say it's a good thing that the United States has such strong protection, but we could also say it in, as a descriptive matter that the United States is exceptional with how much protection we provide for speech. And so the actual malice standard protects Fox just like it protects the New York Times or just like it protects somebody's blog post. And so I think outside of the context of statements about the election being stolen, I don't see this case really giving a reason for Fox to change their approach to their journalistic endeavors. Help me understand this because the person that says the election has been stolen more than anybody else is former President Trump. And he's criticized secretaries of state. He's criticized election officials down to, you know, people who were working in clerk's offices that night. Does he, uh, is he vulnerable to libel cases based on his continued belief of this narrative and, and discussion of this narrative? S certainly. Yeah. I and I would say one of the interesting things that Fox or other networks will have to wrestle with, we can imagine he's currently the front runner for the uh, Republican presidential candidate. We can imagine very simply that he will give live speeches that might be covered by networks, and one could imagine him continuing to repeat the false statement that the election was stolen. If it's a live statement, I don't think Fox is in trouble for airing that live statement, but if I was their lawyer or anybody's lawyer, I would want to put a scroll down there or have the news host come in and say, despite what the former president has said, it has been established that these claims are false by Attorney General Bill Barr, by the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, by 59 computer experts, by the statements of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, who Sean Hannity said in the deposition, I did not believe it for one second. And so I think if he is making statements live on television, that that is not going to create a big risk for any entity. But I think I would be careful if I was the network showing it to provide some context to those statements. And one thing going back to, you know, is this going to change Fox's behavior? Uh, one thing we I think we have to keep in mind here is Fox is not a normal news operation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was hesitant to go here. But as far as the law is concerned, that doesn't necessarily make a big difference. Um, as far as uh, the audience is concerned, it should probably make a little bit of a difference. That One thing that we did learn, I think, that a lot of us already suspected was that the opinion commentators on Fox tend to influence the news direction of Fox, whereas in most newsrooms it's the other way around. Uh, the commentators generally feed from what they're seeing the news people produce. Fox seems to go the other way. One example is that on election night, for example, uh, one of Fox's election analysts was the first uh, network analyst to announce that Fo that uh, Biden had won Arizona. At most news organizations, that person would have gotten a bonus, maybe at least taken out to a nice steak dinner. Uh, they would have taken out full-page ads saying, we were first. At Fox, Carlson, Hannity, et cetera, went ballistic saying, get that person off the air, and and they did. <laughs> uh, so uh, to the extent that, that the news operation kind of works at the behest of the opinion operation, Fox does not operate the way most organizations do. They really operate more as a propaganda machine uh, more than anything else. So I'm not sure that that's going to change. Uh, I'm not sure that, that Fox's culture will change in that respect. Uh, I think Joe is correct, though. I think if I were Fox's attorneys, I would be telling them, could we maybe not lie anymore uh, if we could avoid it? All right. We're talking about media law and uh, Tucker Carlson leaving Fox, the Dominion case. Uh, we haven't gotten into Don Lemon at all yet, leaving CNN. But if you have any questions or comments, you can uh, call us, 812-855-0811 or toll-free, 877 285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, let me just mention Don Lemon for just a second. I mean, it's a different kind of situation. Um, Tony, explain what happened to Don Lemon from CNN. Don said some unfortunate things uh, about uh, Nikki Haley 
which was part of a kind of a pattern of saying some things he probably shouldn't have said that, that were at least borderline misogynistic uh, about women. To some extent, that was also Tucker Carlson's downfall at Fox. It was certainly part of the, the excuse for why they were able to get rid of him was that he was also facing a lawsuit from a female Fox employee uh, and also had said some, some pretty uh, nasty things about, about women uh, that were part of some of the text messages and other things that, that became part of the Dominion lawsuit. So, uh, but Don Lemon, Don Lemon had had a history of, of getting into various controversies with CNN, and there was probably going to come a breaking point at some point. It's kind of ironic that it ends up happening the same, actually, I believe the same day as Tucker Carlson uh, was released from Fox. But, uh, but I think it had been a long time coming. Uh, his recent comments that Nikki Haley was past her prime at 51, uh, you know, she uh, begins her presidential campaign was probably the last straw. It's interesting to me because a lot of, uh, you know, what we always considered, you know, news coverage, which was sort of unbiased and uh, was going to try not to be very opinionated. It seems like Don Lemon didn't really follow along with that. So not everybody does these days. Well, and I don't think that's what they were expecting him to do as yeah. CNN. And one of the things that, that has been kind of fascinating to watch over the years, and I, you know, I've I'm old enough that I've actually remembered the birth of, you know, cable news. Was cable has only cable news has always been a hybrid, uh, in many ways, because one thing they learned, kind of going forward, was that there is a certain market for hearing the news reported, you know, 24/7. But what people really want to hear is what am I supposed to think about it? And one of the things I find interesting is that sometimes when I'm talking in public about the media, inevitably the first question I get when we go to Q&A is, where can I find unbiased news? And I respond, well, you won't. <laughs> we all have you know, different types of biases. They're not necessarily the biases you think are out there. Um, you know, I worked in four newsrooms before I went to graduate school. We never, in the newsroom, spent all of our time deciding how can we get the Republicans today or anything like that. There just wasn't time to do any of that, for one thing. Our biases were more about what we thought news was, I think, more than anything else. Um, but in what the cable uh, system did was they set up a system where during the day it's pretty much the news being repeated. But in the prime time, in the, in the key peak hours for coverage, they went to all opinion shows. Uh, Rachel Maddow at MSNBC or Anderson Cooper at CNN or uh, Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity at Fox. And I think a lot of people are having trouble distinguishing sometimes those things. And I'm not saying that people are stupid. I'm just saying that Mm -hmm. because they have blurred the lines, it sounds sometimes like Tucker Carlson is reporting the news, but what he's really doing is giving you a little tidbit of what's going on out there so he can riff on it about how it shows the downfall of America under Biden or whatever it might, you know, whatever his particular stance that night happens to be. So I, I don't think we, we necessarily want to judge uh, all news by cable news' standards, but they have shown a path that other media have followed that people really do want to hear people argue about the news or, or pontificate about the news. And I think that's unfortunate, but you know, human nature being human nature, then that's that's kind of the way that went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're kind of just Jerry Springer having just passed away this week. Right. Um, so, you know, we've been um, treated, subjected, uh, depending on your, your feeling about him, to clips from his shows. And I think, you know, clearly, you know, in my lifetime, there's sort of been this general tendency to for sensationalism and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so it's it's kind of followed that Com- conflict as well. Is, yeah, conflict okay. has always been a news value, but this is a whole new kind it, of conflict. True. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. I let me wanted to quickly ask, just, just kind of for comparison purposes, because you get a lot of whataboutism about um, the various cable companies. And um, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC probably is usually trotted out as the, on the left, the one who perhaps comes the closest to the extremes of of Carlson, um, and uh, and yet I well let me just stop there and say what just from your perspective, but uh, both of you your perspective of um, the way in which she or other um, more direct commentators um, on the left, um, what's the difference? 
what it, how well, would you how would you characterize where that line is and how they avoid some of the excesses um, so picking up on something tony said a moment ago I, i'll always remember this uh, back and forth in the new york times between glenn greenwald and bill keller and it was about what is journalism and glenn greenwald says there can be no unbiased journalism and we should put our cards on the table and really arguing for advocacy journalism on its face and bill keller said no we should try to report things in a more neutral objective manner and I really don't think that there is a right answer there. I think there's certainly space in our democracy for both types of things, especially if people are not confused as to what they're getting. My more specific comment to your question is what we should really be talking about if we're talking about left-leaning advocacy journalism. We should be talking about Democracy Now! and Amy Goodman because MSNBC is also a for-profit company that it's not red or blue, it's green. And so I don't think that MSNBC is that different from Fox in that particular aspect, although their journalistic standards certainly might differ. But I think people should really listen to Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! if they want to see left-leaning, uh, factual-based journalism. We're in, a, we're in an age when technology has just made all this uh, more difficult to navigate, it seems to me. And Joe, I know you've done a lot of work in the privacy area. And if you could just give us your sense of, you know, where are the hot buttons now when it comes to privacy law and whether people have a, have a, uh, uh, if they believe they can still say, stay a private citizen, especially if they're in some sort of public role. So I, just really quickly, my background, I used to represent media companies, both as outside counsel and in-house counsel doing pre-publication review. I have a strong bias from maybe who I am and certainly my life experience. I'm a strong believer in freedom of expression. I also teach six credits of privacy law, and I'm confused every day about where I stand on these issues because technology has made this a much more complicated conversation than it has in the past. Existing law on the balance between speech and privacy I don't think gives us the answers to the questions that we're facing today. An easy example might be the use of face recognition technology. Is it, do we want to live in a world where you can walk down the street and somebody takes your picture and uploads it to a database to figure out who you are? In the past, something like that really wouldn't raise First Amendment concerns. If you're walking down the street, certainly somebody can take your photograph. But in the past, we didn't have face recognition technology. So it's a really fascinating area to talk about, and that's merely one example of how privacy and speech are conflicting in ways that we don't have answers to, and we're going to have to think through together as a society, and the law is going to have to make movements to figure out what that proper balance is. How are we going to work through that with when you add the layer of artificial intelligence, of AI? Because people are going to be they're going to be shown saying things that they never said or doing things that they never did. How's that going to sort out? Yeah. And if I know if either one of you really has the answer to that question, then you're going to make a lot of money. But Tony, what do you? I, I know it's a tough. One. I was going to say I'm not going to make a lot of money today. I can already <laughs> tell. Um, it's a tough one because uh, some of the deep fake technology that has been created is startlingly sophisticated. Uh, it's gotten to the point where it's nearly impossible without special equipment and some expertise to determine what is fake and what isn't. Uh, we've already seen examples of this, you know, things like Joe Biden being shown like falling asleep, uh, you know, at a public event where that it wasn't actually what happened. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. At the same time, some of this technology also does have more legitimate uses. For example, um, you know, Carrie Fisher showing up in a Star Wars sequel after she had already passed away was largely a result of deep fake technology. And Hollywood has been using some versions of that for a long time. Um, there also are, are some other ways that you can use deepfake technology well, but uh, for the one thing that I think you know Joe and I can probably agree on is that the law is only as incredibly slow to catch up to what's actually going on, and these days with the technology issues, uh, the changes in technology happen so fast now that the traditional lag time between a new technology coming up and the law catching up to it is now being repeated almost weekly and daily uh, in leaps and bounds while you know we're still trying to 
figure out what to do with that pesky internet thing um, in, you know, in the legislatures around the country. So uh, I don't have a good answer for, for your question. Um, I think one thing that, that courts always look at is uh, precedent. In other words, is there an antecedent to this that we can apply to this new problem that we're looking at? I think with deep fake technology, you could certainly argue, is this really that much different from forgery? Uh, is this that much different from uh, lying, you know, basically, again, the lying issues that come up in libel cases or in many other uh, venues as well? So I think there are still some possibilities to use existing law to, to do something about the more egregious uses of deep fake technology. But I do think that it poses such an existential threat in many ways to us being able to tell what's true and what's not, that there may be some need for some uh, targeted legislation for for that particular technology down the road. But again, it also, you could argue, is a form of expression. And does that mean that deep fake technology is also, at least to some extent, protected by the First Amendment? And I don't have an answer. Joe, where do you fall on that? So one point that Tony mentioned uh, made me think of this this book that I love by Marshall McLuhan in the mid-1960s called Understanding Media, the Extension of Man. And at the time, he was talking mainly about television and radio, but he says that technology will never be anything greater or lesser than what we are as human beings. It's an extension of who we are. And so Tony says that AI has beneficial uses, and there's certainly no doubt about that in my mind. And regardless of that, we're not putting the genie back in the bottle. And so we're going to have to wrestle with this technological development. And a lot of it, and this is the the place to make the money, uh, Bob, is how do we change social norms? How do we get human beings to treat each other with more civility and dignity? And how do we draw lines as far as what are permissible uses and when should the law step in? Because there's lots of problems that the law doesn't need to solve. And I think that actual malice, freedom of speech, is one of those areas. We allow breathing space. We allow bad speech so that we don't chill valuable speech. And so I think that in addition to thinking about legal regulations, we also really have to think hard about how do we develop social norms with the uses of this technology? And I really wish I had the answer to that. Did you? I, I like the forgery anal, uh, you know, analysis or analogy. Is, does that seem logical to you? Absolutely. Lawyers, that's, that's all we do is we look for analogies. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But I think forgery is a, is a really good example. Well, and when, when, if you've got a forgery case, let's say, uh, and you get you know, expert, test, expert testimony from art historians, let's say it's a, a forged uh, painting, they can look for telltale signs, right, that would prove it. And I wonder, this is a topic for another uh, another program probably, um, but whether some of what, what we need to be looking at are uh, transparency tags or something that, that so that all this stuff can be out there, but it is discoverable that, in fact, it was generated by an AI mechanism as opposed to being a real human being so that and then the social norms then would support people actually looking for that before they draw their own conclusions I and mean, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be great critical thinking <laughs> we, we have a question that's come in uh, it's about actual malice it says regarding actual malice how difficult is it to prove in cases other than like this dominion case it's intentionally very difficult, and that is why I think it's, you know, although I disagree with Justice Thomas, that it's yeah. too robust, uh, it is very hard to prove. And from a normative perspective, I think it's wonderful that we protect speech, even speech with which we disagree. So it's a really challenging hurdle to overcome intentionally. Okay. Um, Tony, you've done a lot of work on the First Amendment. You know, we've talked, uh, you know, we're, we're in a, I guess the show is about the First Amendment in a lot of ways. And, and the idea that people do have uh, five freedoms based on the First Amendment. Where do you see the, um, the troublesome spots coming forward? You know, there, there, it seems like there are lots of challenges to democracy that we maybe didn't see even 10 years ago. Where are the challenges to the First Amendment that we should be worried about? How long have you got? Uh, <laughs> we have about 10 minutes to go. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, 
I'll try to give you the short version. Then, uh, Joe actually brought up one of the, the key ones. I think is is the uh, continuing uh, battle between privacy and free speech, which has always been a, t- a tension spot. But uh, these days, as, for all the reasons that Joe mentioned, is is becoming much more of a tension spot. Uh, people are, are, I think, our Americans have never really been as uh, obsessed about privacy as as maybe other cultures have been. But I think that's been changing as people have become a little bit more aware about all the different ways their data are being used, for example. Um, so I think that's that's going to continue to be a spot. In terms of AI uh, technology, uh, I, I just had some of my students reading a few uh, you know, law review articles about some of the you know, the challenges that people are starting to think up about what's coming forward. And uh, we are going to have some issues with, for example, uh, AI-produced news stories, which already exist. Um, some news organizations use AI, for example, to produce kind of routine stories about quarterly reports from corporations or, um, you know, high school baseball games and things like that. Uh, but what happens if one, when one of those stories libels somebody? Um you know, who are you going to call, basically, on that one? Uh, you can still sue the news organization that employs the AI, certainly. Uh, but what's the proper standard to hold them to when you don't have a human who can uh, essentially work with actual malice when that would be a foreign concept to, you know, to a computer? I, I could go on and on, but I won't. But the problem is, the thing is, that yes, we are in a, an era where uh, the challenges are coming at us fast and furious and um, and multiplying daily. Mm-hmm. I think that with the First Amendment, too, a lot of times people do think in terms of freedom of speech, freedom of expression. There are five freedoms in that First Amendment so that, you know, the, the First Amendment is often at, at issue in the freedom of religion or freedom from religion. So, Joe, where do you see um, – where do you see the the hot button issues when it comes to the First Amendment going forward? I think one of the major concerns with the First Amendment today is the current makeup of the Supreme Court and how they interpret the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. This fake theory of originalism is intended to, the proponents say, is to remove, we just talked about, bias in journalism and objectivity. And the underlying theory of originalism, according to its proponents, is it ties the hands of judges so that they can't inject their own personal biases into their decisions. But it does no such thing, and in fact, it gives them more freedom to do so. And we have to come to the recognition that when we are engaging in constitutional analysis, that the text of the document doesn't give us many answers. And uh, and sometimes we just flat out ignore it. So, for example, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say anything about school boards, fire departments, police departments, and several other areas. But people of all sides of the political spectrum agree that the First Amendment puts limitations on people and entities besides Congress. The First Amendment also says Congress shall make no law, but there are plenty of laws that we find are constitutional. And so the text of the amendment doesn't give us the answers. And what we need to really do is understand that when we're talking particularly about the First Amendment in these issues is that we're talking about values and trying to figure out a way to come together and use reason to figure out what those values should be should be on the table in ways that it's not today. Mm-hmm. We're not going to talk about the Second Amendment today. We're just talking about the First Amendment, although I appreciate what you said, and it could be uh, extrapolated, I guess, for other amendments as well. Um, we talked before the program began, we talked about some issues with social media that, that are coming along. This is another area that's a new area that, that laws are trying to laws are being written about social media. Laws are trying to corral what social media, um, I guess, mores should be or, or whatever, what the laws should be about social media. You mentioned Texas and Florida have laws that they're, they're trying to consider right now. What are those about? So ultimately, Texas and Florida both passed laws that tried to limit the ability of social media companies to take down content. First of all, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private actors. So if Twitter wants to remove people from Twitter, they can, and Facebook is just the same. Now, we can have a meaningful conversation about whether the First Amendment ought to apply to these private actors, but under existing doctrine, it doesn't. 
I know that we're short on time, but I will say that what's going on with the debates about the Texas and Florida social media laws should is a conversation we should really be having about net neutrality, which is access to the internet as opposed to the platforms that run on top. And so what's interesting about this is a lot of the arguments that you see supporting the social media bills in Texas and Florida are arguments that I think some of the same politicians would reject in the context of net neutrality. And to me, we're having the wrong conversation when we talk about the platforms and not the connection. So really quickly, the electric company has no right to say what type of television you use. Uh, They're not going to charge you more if you use a television or toaster. They're going to charge you based on the amount of electricity that they use. If you create a device that runs on the electric network that doesn't harm the network, you don't have to get permission from the electric company to do that. When we talk about net neutrality, we're talking about that connection like electricity. And I think it would be a really great opportunity to see the debates we're having about the social media laws and put that emphasis back on the topic of net neutrality. Tony. Just real quickly. one of the part of the debate, and Joe Joe did an excellent job there of, of describing it so far. Uh, one of the debates is: Should we start considering uh, public media or social media as public utilities or public forums uh, because they have uh, become such a central part of how we communicate? Uh, the problem with that, of course, uh, again, as Joe said, is that these are private entities. We would have to really monumentally change our understanding of the First Amendment if we were to go in that direction. However, I should mention that the Supreme Court just took a case, agreed to accept a case in the last week, where they are going to basically look at that question. Uh, Does a public official turn their Twitter or Facebook account into a public forum by basically uh, connecting it with their public office? We had a case involving President Trump that went to the Supreme Court, but uh, because of various technicalities was mooted, essentially, because he was out of office. But the Supreme Court has agreed to take another case to, to look at that very question again. Uh, and it'll be really a fascinating examination of where the court wants to go, I think, with these kind of uh, questions about what exactly are social media. Uh, have they basically become so powerful uh, that we should now consider them more like public utilities, like the electric company, uh, which I think would be a, a personally would be a major mistake, but um, is one possibility of how they could go. You know, early early times in in the media, in the uh, internet world, when I was being a journalist, I mean, we could we could allow comments on our stories, but if we went in and and moderated the comments or edited the comments, then we could be sued for what was in the comments, but we couldn't be sued otherwise. At least that was our understanding of, of the case on net neutrality. Let let me. It's always been a little tough subject for me to understand, but I think we did a story or we did a show on net neutrality probably three years ago, four years ago. It seemed like it was a big topic at the time, maybe two years ago. It was a big topic back uh, at one point. And I think what you're saying is that we've stopped talking about this issue of net neutrality. We're sort of honing in on little bits of it, but you think we should broaden it out. So what are the t- can you explain again the two sides of net neutrality? So one way to think about it, when people talk about the internet, they talk about a stack. Mm -hmm. And different parts run on top of each other. At some point, you need cables. At some point, you need physical connection. And then at the top layer are the platforms, the things that people interact with on a daily basis, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, whatever it might be. And the laws in Texas and Florida are really trying to impose these public utility common carrier obligations on these platforms on the top. But we should really be talking about lower layers on the stack, your connection to your house, just like your electricity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and to add to that a little bit, uh, the net neutrality bay is currently stalled uh, partly because the FCC is missing a member. And uh, the FCC has been, uh, the Federal Communications Commission has been the big driver uh, behind the policy. And we've uh, flip flopped back and forth you know, for the last, what, six, seven years now, I guess. Um, depending on the membership of the FCC and, and, you know, who's in the White House to some extent. So we're at a, a stage right now where net, uh, the net neutrality, neutrality policy that the FCC adopted in uh, 2015, I believe, has been rescinded in favor of a no net neutrality policy uh, in 2018. And there's a lot of uh, thinking that probably the FCC will go back and revisit it again if they ever get to a fifth member. 
Uh, the FCC's uh, majority on their five-member board uh, is usually uh, the majority of those people are associated with whoever's in the White House at that time. Um, so right now we have two Democrats, two Republicans, so it's more or less a stalemate. The Republicans tend to, to uh, disfavor net neutrality. Democrats tend to favor. Okay. And right now uh, they can't go anywhere on it at, the, at this point. Okay, we have two minutes to go. So I want to give you guys a chance at the end to tell us, um, you know, in your opinion, where is the next battle going to be when it comes to, you know, media law? Where's, where's the next the next um, major mm, point going to going to show up. Do you have an? It's hard to make predictions on the future, yeah. but I can say that one that is currently percolating gets back to this question about actual malice. We have mm-hmm. two justices that have said that they want to reconsider this constitutional doctrine. There was an there's an effort in Florida to change the rules for defamation law that contradict the actual malice standard, trying to kind of tee that up. But what's interesting, and one of the reasons why I really enjoy talking about free speech, is it does provide an opportunity to bring people across the divide in our very divisive nation. And so, in fact, in Florida, the there has been a lot of conservative opposition to the, the House and Senate Florida bills trying to pull back on actual malice because they could risk having their conservative voices being silenced as well. So I do think that actual malice is something that's percolating, but in addition to battles, I wanna say we should look at free speech as a place that we can come together because we all wanna be able to have the right to say what we wanna say, even if we disagree with the underlying viewpoints. We're gonna give Tony the last word, 30 seconds. Uh, Copyright law, uh, among other things, which interacts a great deal with uh, free speech law. one of the big uh, issues right now that uh, a lot of people are starting to worry about is uh, if something is produced by AI uh, exclusively, who gets to own that? And uh, right now, again, not a clear answer. Okay. I want to thank our guests today, Dr. Anthony Fargo, Tony Fargo, and Joe Tomain. Uh, Tony is with the Media School, and Joe is with the Maurer School of Law. For our producer, uh, Nathan Moore for my co-host, Lori McRobbie. For our engineer, Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.